Casper, I like you more, given your low Uber rating. Thanks very much. Well, she's banned for life, you know that. The best? Hey, Joe. Hey, Emily. The first. 15, that the lithium market was showing signs of, of movement. Um, a lot of people were talking about EVs and the potential of EVs. This was in early 2015. As many members of the lithium community know, I did a crowdfund for a short film that I wrote and directed. And even a little bit about our culture, too. Like, I feel that's an important element to be sharing with, with people outside the company. And, and yes, that is a deliberate strategy. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Today's episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zalandez, a Brian Fields services company active in the lithium space. Zalandez aims to improve on ineffective geoscience technologies and techniques used in brine operations by providing more data, faster, and bringing actionable insights to their clients in hours rather than days. You can find them at www.zelandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Joe Lowry. And I'm your other co-host, Emily Hirsch. And today we are in Los Angeles, California. Actually, are we we in Culver City or are we in... Uh, We're still in LA. Okay, we're still in LA. All right, I just like to be accurate. We were here for Cathodes 2019, the benchmark event that has become the de facto conference of conferences. And we have the benchmark team here and we have a very special guest Ben Ash, who is now known as the hardest working guy at Benchmark, but he's not the hardest working person because that award goes to Emily Dunn. Shout out to Emily Dunn. Hope you enjoy your trip in the camper to um, the Grand Canyon. I happily pass that baton over. we'll, we'll, We'll catch up with you next time. And so we have here Big Ben Ash. Thanks for having me. Simon Moores. Thank you. Casper Rawls and my wife's second favorite person at Benchmark, Andrew Miller. Thank you. Joe, before we get all serious, I have a new award in the lithium space that I would like to give out, which is Best Beard, which goes to Casper. Oh, wow. I mean, Casper has been sucking up the accolades all week. He is like the accolade yeah. magnet. I'm never going to leave. And uh, Ben have beards. They're not great beards. Well, no, Ben does not have a beard. I shaved it because of the stick you were giving me the other day in the bar, so I thought I'll get rid of it somewhat. Well, Damn. there wasn't much to get rid of, but no, yes, I can see I'll you, try it you thinned out the already thin beard. Yep. Whoa! <laughs> hey. Right. I could take it. Right. I mean, I'm never going to be Casper, but this is body shame. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these okay. on the podcast, and now it's body shame. <laughs> Dude, how old are you? Are you I'm millennial? Thirty. I, I you think are I a millennial. Yeah, category, you're, yeah, you're definitely a millennial. Hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, you should try and grow a beard. So I couldn't. I wish could. I could. 
Yeah. All right. Anyway, we got to get down to task here because it was a busy week for Benchmark. Busier for some than others, as I understand it. But we'd like to cover several topics. Among them, just kind of, we're going to talk to the, the big man here. So Simon, as the guy I sat with on Lithium Row in Tokyo, Japan in October of 2015, when... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Lithium Row? Lithium Row. What is Lithium Row? Lithium Row is, there's a Starbucks in Akasaka, right near Akasaka Mitsuke Eki. And at that Starbucks, if you walk 100 meters up, you get the first Lithium office, which is my old joint venture partner, Hanjo Chemical. In between, would we would find SQM, Tochu, who had lithium investments on and off. Everybody's there. And at the end of Lithium Row is the Tesla store. Ooh, cool. So that's why it got the name Lithium Row. And that very day, I met with Simon Moores and Garrett Fueling. So without further preamble... The sage is set. The point I was going to make was that at that time, four years ago, Simon, I asked Simon about... Benchmark. I hadn't seen Simon since I think Buenos Aires when the or Santiago when the first lithium conference was held. So it had been several years, and he told me that you know Benchmark what his vision was, and we got a little crossways because he said there was only Andy. But since that time, we've had some revisionist history because huh. Ben Ash has made the claim and it's been validated that he was actually an employee at the time i guess he just wasn't uh important enough he just hadn't been paid yet maybe that's it that's prove yourself (laughs) yeah okay so and now how many people are at benchmark simon 30 right now 30 yeah that's substantial growth i think you may be the largest battery materials focused entity out there yeah I think we are. Well, we 100% are. Okay. More than that. We were probably that two years ago, right? <laughs> but, um, I mean, 30 people, it's been mad to see that grow. It's kind of grown without us even realizing it. When you hire people because you need to, because of the demand for the products, launching more things, it's just happened organically. So what's been the biggest change in how you run Benchmark with now? I mean, it's because I, I asked, I think, the other day that... You know what? What's the org structure of Benchmark? And I, I, I think the answer was Simon's the boss, and we're not. But um. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds that sounds good to me. Right? Okay. Yeah. Does it though? I mean, when you look at going from a scrappy entrepreneur to having to lead a group of people and sort of set the direction uh, and coordinate, how's that changed you? Oh, I have no idea. You have to ask these guys. Have Still I changed? scrappy? I reckon I've become more chilled out. Have I? You say? You reckon? I think pretty much the same. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say you've changed too much. Pretty but, much the same. But the key, I think the key thing is if you hire, hire based on personality. You know, not many people know this industry anyway. Most people are going to have to learn it. But you hire on personality. People then share your vision, share the work ethic, share the way you treat people, which is absolutely critical. Then things just happen. You don't have to worry about almost managing people. The whole thing is quite organic. It manages itself. Well, it's interesting. You, you, you hire for personality. So is there a benchmark personality type? There is, and I don't know what it is. 
Because you only know when you meet the person. Okay, fair enough. The only comment I'm going to make is that when our next podcast guest, who's out typing on his computer outside this studio, when he joined Benchmark, I said to young Vivas, as a non-drinking vegan, (laughs) how do you fit into the kind of... You know, I'm not going to say there's any exact benchmark type, but normally consumption of alcohol tends to follow the benchmark team. And as I recall, there's usually a non-vegan diet involved. <laughs> so so I, 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 I take that as a compliment because now you, you've got d- diversity, and I'll let Emily guffaw if she must, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. She said she said she wasn't going to participate in any negative energy today. Nope. So, all right. Anyway, let's we can get down to brass tacks, but we would just like to. T- where do you see benchmark five years from now? I live by eighteen month windows. Okay, where do you see benchmark in seventeen months? <laughs> um, bigger, better, but still lithium ion battery supply chain. I think the key thing for us is. Uh, just continuing to build the market out. Obviously, look, we're, we're launching nickel sulfate next. That's the last sort of raw material for us. But then my job really is working on governments, working on oil and gas industries, bringing in new, different types of investors like the West Coast VC guys, those billionaire entrepreneurs that would love this space that don't know it. That's my goal to bring in those types of communities, and I think just just growth of all these different types of people is where I see benchmark, but I don't know. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking that trash, we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't sick. So even though this is a Global Lithium podcast, today we have a cobalt expert in our midst. Welcome, Casper. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on the show. It's, it's been a... Well, we've been waiting coming. to have you. We, we've, uh, we've, we've proffered invitations before, and logistics just haven't worked out. But uh, tell us, if you were going to give us the three-minute version of where Cobalt is in the development of the lithium battery, not just EV, but just the whole battery supply chain, and you, you have this... This bias has been, I mean, I sat with Sumitomo Metal Mining a couple of years ago, and they showed me how little cobalt they actually used in NCA and how, mm-hmm. you know, that was because it was a major concern of everybody that what was going yeah. to cost of cobalt, the supply, where it comes from. So, Yeah, right now, I mean, yeah, the trend is less cobalt in batteries, right? That, that, that's true. But um, when... They say, you know, Sumitomo, okay, NCA is very low cobalt already, but it uses some. And I think the kind of NCM, which is by far the majority of the EV market, which is where the growth is coming from, that is not going to move to those low those um, low cobalt. Um, well, NCM 811 is kind of the one that everyone talks about as quickly as people think. It's quite challenging. It's technically challenging. Uh, it's more expensive to produce. So there isn't really any saving there at the moment. Uh, but it is more energy dense, so that's why we're moving to it. But you know, now I, in my presentation at Cathodes, I think I gave the number: eight percent of cathode production facility capacity 
is dedicated to 811, just 8%, a tiny part of the market, um, and even less at the mega factory at the battery scale. So it's still there. It's growing rapidly like everything else. Funnily enough, it's growing rapidly and prices are low, but um, same, I think, for lithium. Uh, but, you know, it's a long road before you can say that, you know, we're going to be at those really low cobalt levels One for the industry. The, the things that other people have said that I have repeated without actually verifying with a cobalt expert has been that on a long run basis that cobalt is a bigger bottleneck to scaling up electrification or mass battery production than lithium. Is that true? Uh, Am I wrong? It can be. Cobalt's a lot more complicated. So right now there's not a problem with cobalt. I mean, things have changed quite a lot recently because Glencore, the largest cobalt producer in the world, just announced they, or in August announced they're going to close at the end of this year the world's largest cobalt mine. So that's changed things quite a lot. But it's a potential bottleneck, and it's complicated because it's a byproduct. So it isn't you don't mine it pri as a primary product. Would you say that 90 or 95% of the cobalt that goes into the market is extracted as a byproduct? 99%. Wow. Yeah, 99 So mostly from copper projects in the DRC, 70 72%. The rest comes from nickel mostly, and there's a couple of other sources, and then one primary mine in Morocco. So when we talk about the artists, one of the problems with cobalt is the um, artisanal slash illegal mining that's undertaken mostly by children in very dangerous conditions. Are those children mining copper? It, it's not mostly by children. So artisanal, the problem with artisanal mining is that you don't know where it's come from. So some of it's legal and is fine and is safe, and that's what we want the industry to move towards. But then equally, there's a portion of it that is illegal, which could be people mining in a concession they don't have the, the permission to, or they could be, as you say, the human rights issues, including forced labour and child labour, which is a really a very small part. But the risk is any one, you know, one gram of your cobalt they, comes from that. Are they mining copper, though? No, uh, so no, it's, it's not It's not valuable enough. It's the, they, the artisanal workforce are looking for the cobalt because it's high value. Okay. It's the, you get that in gold in the DRC as well, So, you, but you have more strict regulations around gold. I mean, I, I go back to the basically the very beginning of the lithium-ion battery business. So I can remember being in a cobalt conference in the Okura Hotel in Tokyo. I think it was either 96 or 97. And I think cobalt was, what they were buying then, was it 50 bucks a pound? It, it did gone, go up that it high. It had gone yeah, up from, like from 9 to 50. Yeah. And Dr. Nishi from Sony basically got up and said, this can't be or we're not going to have a we're not going to have a business and i think the next year it was way down and, yeah, yeah savage yeah. moves yeah but it was always when i went out to negotiate lithium contracts there was no nobody had any idea about price we could just say, kind of make it up as we went <laughs> along which is a great world for us because we had prices uh, you know it was what you could negotiate was what you got and everybody said to me but Larisan, they have lme for cobalt Right, and I yeah. said, "Well, good for you, but um, you know, we we still don't have uh, LME for lithium." And now my question is, th tell me about the LME cobalt. Yeah, so the contract has struggled with liquidity since day one. Now, there's a number. Of the short story. There's a couple of reasons for that. One primarily is that when you buy cobalt, 
you're not just it's for cobalt metal physical contracts is the first contract now you're not just buying any cobalt metal if you're a consumer you need it comes in lots of different shapes forms we call them and if you you know for your specific application you need sometimes a specific form or shape but sometimes you actually need a specific brand so like aviation super alloys they will only have a couple of approved like the qualification is years long to get this stuff pr- approved to go into the aviation industry. So when you buy from the LME, you're guaranteed the quality, but you can get any listed brand. So you can get any form. And, that, and you know, as a consumer, that's no good to you. The other issue you have is that um, as a speculator, A, you might not want to take physical metal. So that's, you know, not helpful to you, but also uh, it's not very liquid. So if you take a large position, you can't get out of it when you need to. It's not very good as a, as a hedging tool. So... That's been one of the problems. So it still struggles with liquidity, very small volumes trade. And then there is now also a cash settle contract, which so far, I think, hasn't traded at all. So again, what's, very illiquid. What's the difference between the old contract and the cash settled contract? <laughs> so the old one, you would take physical delivery. So you actually get the metal and the cash one, you get cash, which is good if you don't want. If it's more, it's meant to help generate liquidity because a lot of people can't take physical if they're just speculating if you're a consumer you can but you don't know what you're going to get you could get any brand which isn't good for you so simon when you look at how this might emerge in the lithium side of things what are your thoughts on that that's a good question um the lithium industry the cash settled thing is a financial contract for the financial industry for speculators it's not there to serve as a function for the actual industry. Um, the one thing that we always say is that any form of exchange uh, or any form of financial contract has to be lithium-focused. You have to understand who the players are in the market, both on the supply side and, and the buyers, the buyers especially, um, what they actually need and and create that. And I think... You know, a cash-settled contract doesn't do that. Um, but it's clear that lithium needs help in um, new trading mechanisms to help reduce volatility in the price, to make it more transparent so um, new buyers can come into the market, the industry can grow. And, um, well, that's my thoughts. Andy, what do you think? I'd agree. I, I think also the risk you have, at, going back to what Casper was saying about the liquidity of the contract, if a contract has limited liquidity, then you know is it being used by the industry, but also does it serve as potentially a hindrance to, or a distraction from people trying to make decisions about you know whether it be investments or, or what references you use in the lithium market? Um, well, you guys are talking to all... The one nice thing about talking to you is that you touch on all parts of the value chain. So... Is there any expectation that it could ever be practical to have delivered physical lithium, given what I know about how people qualify material and what I know about how picky people are? And if you have Albemarle material in a warehouse and somebody hasn't qualified them, they're not, yeah. you, can't, you can't get them to take it. I think it depends how big the industry gets. Right, we're dealing with a three hundred thousand ton, give or take, LCE chemical industry last year, and um, right now it's a specialised industry. We're dealing with a specialty chemical. 
where the customers dictate the terms, the specifications, um, they have partnerships with the suppliers. So once you're qualified, once you're in there, it's it lasts for decades. Um, you know that's lithium industry today. You know it's not a commodity, regardless of what people try and say and shoehorn into it. It's understanding those nuances. Um, but you know when lithium gets to double the size, six hundred, seven hundred, a million tons, um, can you then change the way it's traded? Um, I don't know. I think. Uh, it, it, and maybe in tier two and tier three you could, mm. but I think in tier one, particularly because most of tier one is going to be ultimately probably be slanted towards hydroxide because of high nickel, and hydroxide's much harder to store. You know, it, it, it seems to me like a very difficult premise. And then the other thing, and I want to just make sure that you guys are hearing the same thing that I'm hearing, or if not, we'll talk about the differences. You know, I had had Paul Graves on a recent podcast, and he was just talking more about even within one customer, they might have four different specs for different things they're trying to make. And when I worked for what's now LiveVent, I mean, I was telling somebody the other night, we, we had a spec, but for battery, it was meaningless because everybody had their attached we got to have this, we got to have this, we don't want that. And so we were called blue sheets at the time because even though we did have computers back in those days, they had we physically had a blue page in a book that said it's got to be this or we can't ship it. So are you hearing similar things, Mr. Miller, from the market? I think that's, that's definitely a concern on the, the chemical side, you know, for the consumers. I think, you know, there definitely is a push for... Um, whether it be tier one consumers or any other consumers, I think you'd agree to qualify more types of material and be able to not be so tied to one or two producers. But maybe the reality of the market today with the structure that you have today means that if you're ordering certain volumes, you're just just the fact that you're going to be tied or pretty heavily reliant on one or two major suppliers. So I think, like Simon said, scales, until you have some time of scale, you're not going to have... Well, I heard I heard an interesting story that there's there's one particular buying entity out who's claiming they need fifty thousand tons of lithium hydroxide next year, and it's not Tesla, or it's not Sumitomo Metal Mining for Tesla material. So if that in fact were the case, I mean there literally is nowhere you can go from one supplier because first of all, you take a company like Gangfen, and Gangfen's very been very shrewd about how they've contracted, and they're. And they're doing the same thing that, that I used to do. I said, I'm only going to give you X percent of my capacity. I will never give you, well, I would never even give one guy 20. But um, if if you have a 50,000 ton need, and they probably don't, but even if, even if that's aspirational, it happens in 2023, how do you satisfy that demand? It's a good question. It's something the industry needs to 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 answer pretty quickly and i think that goes back to the some of the time frames i know you guys point out on your on the pod quite a lot and, and we try and say it in our presentations the the lead time for this build out that you're talking about by the mid 2020s you can't just talk about getting a mine into production you have to have scale you have to have qualification um and all of that takes time so yeah fifty thousand tons of hydroxide is a lot is there anything in cobalt that's like what you go through for lithium qualification uh, 
It's yeah, in cobalt, it's not quite the same. So typically, the battery supply chain would be buying, like, well, China, the Chinese refiners buy cobalt hydroxide, which is what comes out of the DRC. But it's not as stringent on it, the products. Actually, varies quite a lot, even from batch to batch, from the same producer. That's not as important. Um, and you know, with cobalt, it's more about getting it out the ground economically. I think than the, with lithium, it's like the processing is really complex. I don't think you really have that necessarily in cobalt and until you get further downstream to more like battery focused products what's well, it's another question i have for you is that i don't know how much you know about lithium specs but at the end of the day a lot of these processes you're mixing everything so the you have yeah. to deal with the the total impurity base yeah. yeah yeah and so i mean what do you think about the trade-offs between i mean if you have the best lithium carbonate and you dump in dirty cobalt yeah, but you've pro- you've processed. By the time it go gets in, into contact with the lithium, it's already precursor, so it's been processed several times by then, and it's you know that's and that. Well, that's what I'm really asking. Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about the, the the material that then is processed. So the spec on that, but that's an internal spec. Yeah, within... so cobalt sulfate would be for the EV industry. Yeah. It'd be cobalt sulfate, largely speaking, and that is it's it's yeah it's important, um, but I think it's not quite as challenging as lithium in terms of it's easier to source from lots of people and there are lots of producers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's not the same level of scrutiny on those, on the, the, those impurities. It's important, but it's not like so challenging like lithium. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zolandes, a Bronfield services company that specializes in real-time technology services and solutions that improve customer performance. Low confidence data, lack of actionable insights, multi-day turnaround, sound familiar? Delays and budget runovers are a constant threat, and without that data, projects don't advance. Zalandes offers an exclusive borehole magnetic resonance service that characterizes the in-situ porosity and permeability of your mineral resource faster and more accurately than conventional methods. Zalandes brings a new way of doing things to the lithium brine space. To learn more, head to zalandes.com. Let me ask you about South America, and I, I call it the ABC question, Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. And I got asked a lot in the two days I was here about Bolivia, and I said, Bolivia doesn't matter for lithium. I mean, it doesn't, I don't care what happens with the election from a lithium standpoint. I do from a human, a human standpoint. But when you look at Chile right now and you look at Argentina right now, what, what is your perspective on potential impacts from a new constitution in Chile or from a presidential election in Argentina? I think I think it just slows down the growth that the industry needs. We're in this this weird point in lithium at the moment where, you know, there is a backlog at a, a feedstock level. Um, you definitely have. That's going to take some working through. Um, but the supply of, you know, bat- chemicals and particularly battery-grade chemicals um, you know that isn't in such a huge excess at the moment, and we really need to be building out further conversion capacity and further ability to supply that type of chemical for where the market's going to be in three, four years' time. And with South America being, or potentially, you know, if we look sort of 12 months ago, what was being laid out was, you know, 
uh, going to be quite central to some of that growth over the next few years. Um, some of it now comes a bit more into question. So I think it just adds to the, you know, you've seen that all of the, a lot of those tier two, tier three Chinese converters stall in what they were aiming to do. And everyone was saying how there's going to be plenty of spodumene to plug into those and that would be churning out battery grade chemicals. And then you'd have lots more production from brine. And um, I think both of those things have sort of gone in a opposite direction recently. Would you agree, Emily? <laughs> you were talking about Bolivia this morning to me. Yeah, I mean, Bolivia is not important from a lithium standpoint. Um, the the question or the, the the my wish list, my lithium wish list, is for some analytical teams to start modeling some different scenarios in Chile. You know, Simon, you know, and I guess Ben, you also matter. <laughs> ben matters. Hashtag Ben matters. How do you start looking at that from a modeling standpoint? repeat the question so you guys forecast yeah supply yeah how does what's happening in chile how do you analyze it from a supply forecasting standpoint well we forecast on a quarterly basis now we, we originally were doing it once a year um as probably all publishers out there do unless you're maybe a, a bank um and now we do it quarterly and the second half of that sentence, Andy Miller is going to finish and answer this question. Well, no, I, I think, you know, the best way you can it is a black box and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in that part of the world at the moment. But what we really focus all of our data collection around is trying to have first-hand intelligence. And, you know, we have our colleague Jose who's based in, in Santiago, follows developments in South America very closely and tries to give us the, the real view of what is happening on the ground rather than just, you know, company statements that you get certain intervals that may not give you the full picture um so i don't know is there a the only other thing i would add that you know with our forecasts that is you know makes it very useful for our customers is that you can if you choose to you can change our our you know base case scenario and you can do sensitivity analysis analysis throughout the model so okay like we're saying this is what we think but if someone says actually i think this will be higher this will be lower they put that in and it, you can see how much it really impacts the market so you know the reality is that there's like for each of these minerals there's five to ten factors that within 10 years time depending on what happens with them will be a bigger supply demand change um, than the total size of the market today so we are aware of that and there are th you know there's lots of unknowns in yeah. the supply chain and i think you, what you need to do is see how big of an impact they they, they have in five ten years time and, and and make up your mind on what it may be your investments or yeah but you're right so like modeling things like social unrest which you know, are going to is very important for lithium right now. Um, you need people on the ground. What if you modeled uh, a bigger royalty? How would that hit your model? Uh, how look, look at the DRC, right? Yeah. Look what happened there. They shut the biggest cobalt mine in the world. <laughs> so, but like, let's say for like for in theory a, a royalty of an additional ten percent, an export tax. How, what kind of impact does that have on your forecasting? How big of an impact would that be? Or walk me through what the thought process would be from an analyst who forecasts. So we have to look in as a, it depends which country, it depends project Chile. on a project. In, Two well. projects. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we'd have to look at the targets of where they're aiming to ramp. You know, all of our our ramp up in any types of supply expansions that we see in the market uh, are based upon, you know, we look at what's happened historically in those regions. We try and look at the the impact of previous changes in policy um, and how that's affected their ability to ramp up. And then we we place where that puts them on the cost curve as well. And that's a big part of our analysis. Um, So there's, there's no one-off thing that we do in particular and and as i say it's on a case-by-case basis which is why we break everything down when you look at from all the discussions you have and you talk to oems you talk to battery guys what's the concern level of adequate supply of the quality of material they need is it still fool's paradise or are people getting worried or i mean it's yeah it's an emerging I think you can break the autos down into three groups, really. Call them tiers if you want. Um, there's a there's a, a handful, maybe three, that are really serious, that are looking into the whole supply chain and are worried about raw material supply, especially lithium and nickel. They're top of the list. Those two really. Cobalt, Casamite, um, well, can add more, but cobalt's actually dropped down the list um, of concerns. It's more of a a um a supply chain transparency thing with cobalt than it is a volume thing whereas actually volumes of lithium nickel have got a handful of the autos concerned then you've got this tier two group that have kind of done work in it but are like almost frozen in the headlights they know it's an issue uh, but no one's making a call to do anything about it yet and that's the downside of a you know really big industry that hasn't changed for a generation and that has a lot of um let's say red tape in it and and it's kind of you have these different departments looking at each other but no one's making the call and that has to come from the top right that has to come from a big bold plan uh, rather than launching one or two evs here and there yeah also people have short memories add that you know cobalt price now is you know down the same lithium right price is quite low at the moment historic probably within historic ranges but it, everybody considers it to be low and so they're less concerned they forgot that 18 well, months ago it, it, it was that's an interesting bucks, right? point you make because i i have the october numbers for chile and both the atacama producers are selling at very low prices in china mm-hmm. but most of their volume in korea and japan is still over 10 in some cases it's over 11 which is more than double what it was selling for four years ago today. Yeah. yeah. So it's, but most people haven't been following it for four years. So yeah, exactly. this whole, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And it's like an interesting thing with, with when John Evans, who I used to work for at Live or FMC Lithium, came back into the industry, he says, hey, this seems great to me because when I left, it was 5,000 a yeah. ton. Perspective is <laughs> all, yeah, it's all yeah, exactly. about perspective. Perspective is yeah. everything because in, when we started the benchmark, the battery industry was 60 gigawatt hours a year. This year it's going to be 190. So it's grown 3x in the time we've just been talking about it. And everyone feels like this party hasn't started yet. Well, it has. It's just happening in China right now. It's not happening in the rest of the world. Well, let me, let me just posit to you an observation I made last week. And you can tear holes in it if it, you think it's wrong. But... I took the Korean and the Japanese September year-to-date import stats, and they're already ahead of last year. And if you annualize them, it's up 30,000 tons. This is carbonate and hydroxide. 
And this carbonate hydroxide's all going in the tier one yeah. battery. So you have all this hand wringing and all this angst that, oh my God, China's not growing like we thought it was. And you, everybody knows the battery industry is all China, which I've always said was BS. And 30,000 tons, even if, even if it only comes out to be 25,000 when, when, when the numbers are finally in. But you, if you look at the historical record, you can pretty well annualize September and be close. Um, why is there such sentiment that EVs aren't growing and, you know, this is... I mean, I called, I called 2019 a gap year, not because I, the market didn't grow. It's just because sentiment was so bad that, mm. you know, it was just everybody needs to chill. And so, what, what, I mean, what's your take on battery growth? bringing Korea and Japan into the discussion. Well, I, I go back to actually the presentation Simon gave this week at Cathodes and sort of outlined how the narrative, there's a bit of a false narrative around the situation in a lot of these markets. You're still looking at, I think you called it the double-digit paradox. Was that I took slide? that from your lithium price paradox <laughs> blog from earlier in the year, which was the biggest received... Does that make it a circular year. reference? What happens yeah. with a paradox <laughs> of a paradox? That sounds oh, like Inception. Too. That sounds like some Christopher <laughs> Nolan. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, you, you're, you know, I think maybe too much of the story has gone to China. Obviously, you're seeing massively high growth levels, and, and that excited the industry. But the bigger picture now is not just China, which is going to continue to grow this year, but what happens with the, re the rest of the world. Um, and it's not, you know, it's going to be the growth initially in those tier one uh, Japanese and Korean battery producers. Well, yeah, I, I view Japan and Korea is a surrogate for what's happening in EV in Europe yeah, and and the U.S., but the U.S. is always going to lag because we're just, we have no policy, and, you know, as long as gas is as cheap as it is here, that's always going to have an impact, too. Do most of what you say about cobalt with batteries naturally line up with what he says about lithium and batteries, or do you have disconnects you have to work out? Pretty much it lines up. They're actually very similar markets. It's quite funny that what we see typically is that what happens in cobalt will happen maybe a few months later in lithium, but they, the, the trends are very similar. But the only thing that cobalt has that is slightly different to lithium is obviously that substitution for nickel. So that kind of impacts things a bit more. But it's still, you know, the market's growing, yeah, like I think double digits as well. And yep. this is a down year, you know. It's uh, People expect, you know, if it's not 25% growth, we're going backwards. Well, that's ridiculous. What other markets yep. do you even get 10% growth? That's why lithium and cobalt are very different, say, nickel markets and graphite anode, because 50, over 50% of supply, give or take, is going into batteries. So the whole industry is now geared towards lithium-ion batteries. It's not the same for nickel. And it's not the same for graphite, and it's a, it's an interesting point. When I gave the, when I was working out the keynote presentation at Cathodes, I worked out I wanted to work out. Hold on, price is down. We get that, but demand's up. So I worked it out for the raw materials, lithium down, our weighted chemical index down twelve percent average, uh, demand's up eighteen percent this year. We had cobalt down eight percent price up twelve percent demand this year yeah, give or yeah take. sounds about right yeah. then you go but it's interesting go to cathodes and anodes again price down 
demand up, but they're tied to the raw materials, so you can kind of understand that. Then go to lithium-ion batteries, price down 21%, demand up 25%. And EVs are going to grow probably 8% this year, depending on if more bad news comes out of China. So you've got extreme, well, double-digit growth across the board in the whole supply chain, yet the prices are down. And, and what it tells us is, you know, no, no speciality chemical or part of the supply chain is immune to supply de- short-term supply demand imbalances but the trend the long-term even the medium-term trend is is stratospheric what other industry is growing at 18 percent a year ask any commodity or chemical industry that kind of to to i will when i see them yeah. um <laughs> but one of the 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 topics that joe and i did a podcast on recently was like yeah. what's the bottom is the bottom sentiment is the bottom price which trails which? Are we at the bottom? How long is the bottom? Let's talk about bottoms. Ben. <laughs> ben. Only, only you, only you <laughs> could ask that question and I get into trouble, Emily. <laughs> you want me to come in on bottoms? I, I, want, I do. I mean, well, I, mean I can only say from a sales perspective because I get the sponsors in for our events. So I sell our products and stuff like that. So I think... <laughs> Definitely with Benchmark, when we started, it was the majority of our customers on events were development stage mining companies looking to attract investment. And now their kind of tactic has had to change because obviously there's no real interest, especially from the institutional funds. So they are now hoping for attention from the companies further downstream. And um, fortunately for me, with my role at Benchmark, I don't have to do any forecasting of lithium, and I'm delighted about that. <laughs> mm. But that's basically my really kind of crude perspective from, you know, selling our services. Um, well, I mean, that, that's actually that's a great indicator is how easy or hard it is to sell and how you can price what you're doing. Because mm-hmm. how you price what you're doing is, is all about the value yeah. people see of this. Well, in a down business. market, if you look at it across the last couple of years we're actually doing very well for ourselves still so the interest in what we're doing is still you know growing continuously this year is probably a record for well, we maxed out right? speaker sponsors yep maxed out so ran out of spots it's and been brilliant yeah maybe going back to the, the bottom I, I suppose from my perspective i think i i think you know particularly in china we're at the bottom because i you know produce no none of the converters they're able to produce at current price levels apart from one or maybe two of the big guys with some new capacity in the market so you know i think we're at the bottom in china how long is the bottom i think is the crucial question i think a lot of that you know there is definitely a backlog that needs to be worked through now it's a backlog backlog of spodumene from australia but it's also you know you're also starting to see some of that origin and dso that was sat around finding its way back into the market some uh, that's a real uh, tough sell at current prices because when, when we were looking at DSO, I mean, a lot of the people that bought it was the equivalent of 13,000, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm or 1,300, saying, yeah. uh, 1,300 a ton rather, spot you mean. Yeah, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's sustainable, it's going to, but there, there's no, I, no, I get, I mean, China's yeah. a, is a very confused uh, market right now, but, yeah. uh, let me let me posit a theory and then you can poke holes in it. Okay. So 
my information would say that the average cathode producer in China has less than a week's inventory of lithium chemicals because he keeps hoping the price goes down more, so he doesn't want to be holding. Doesn't mean there's not a lot of inventory in China. It just means where it is. So if he was holding six to eight weeks a year ago and he took that down, that added to the oversupply year over year. But when the price starts to tick up and then the the mentality is i gotta buy as much as i can now because next month it's going to be more the, the whole thing reverses itself and you have a panic and you had you've had a panic 2006 to 2008 you had a panic end of 15 to into 17 and i personally believe that whoever's smart enough to lock in the big guys to well-priced contracts is going to feel very good about it either this time next year or early in 21 and i believe the china spot price may go as high as it's ever been yeah you tell me why that's wrong i'm not going to i i i completely believe <laughs> i'm not going to say you're wrong but i'm going to say i i don't know whether it's the exact timing i'd agree well that's but, what yeah i I, uh, I think I, when it turns it turns very quickly um and everything that's happened in the market over the past three to six months would make me believe that's the case even more. So, yeah, whether it's the ta- the tail end of next year when you're looking at 2021 contracts and the volumes start to get that bit bigger. Um, yeah, it's very similar to Cobalt. Same thing. My feeling is H2 next year is like people start to look at 2021 and they think, hang on a minute, this is getting really tight now. And then prices just do what they did in 2016, go from roughly where they are now, tick all the way, well, I don't, I'm not going to say it's going to go up to 